So I had to ask myself the question, how did I get here? It's driving home. All of a sudden, I found myself on the Q Bridge, and I had no intention of being on that bridge at all. Some of you know what I'm talking about. A few months back, they switched the lanes, the exit to I-91 from the right to the left, and if you, like me, are driving, thinking about other stuff, not, not, uh, not paying attention to what you're doing driving, but just being distracted, you'll find yourself following old patterns and winding up on that bridge. How many have done that? How many have done that more than once? <laughs> I won't go further to embarrass, but some I know have done it more than three or four times. That pattern, that drift, can sadly occur in the Christian life. Drift is what the word in Hebrews 2 uses for the Christian life. It isn't quite like being in a boat that loses its motor and gets taken away out among the current. I mean, in that case, you sort of know something's wrong with the boat, and you start to get panicky as it's taking you out of your control. Now, spiritual drifting is like being distracted by other things. You're aware that you're driving, maybe even you're driving well, but you've stopped paying attention to the destination. You don't know exactly how it happened, but you're going along with the flow before you realize that you're not really where you should be. Are you drifting? Do you know what it's like to be in a place that's far from where you should be? Have you stopped to ask the question, how did I get here? How did I grow cold with God? When did I stop? And then you fill in the blank. When did I stop praying? When did I stop getting bothered by those sins that I now find in my life? Maybe it gets so far as to say, when did I stop believing? Am I going through the motions now without anything real of substance there? You know, drifting, I think, is is far more common than than very clear and consciously making a decision to reject God. Far more often we we diverge from the path rather than taking a sharp U-turn. It starts off maybe with a sin that we can pass over. Maybe we're ashamed of it and we just want to move on and turn the page and get to something else. We can ignore it. But we get there and we know we're not where we should be. The question for us this morning is not how we got there, but how do you get back? How do you renew your faith once you realize you've been in the midst of a drift? Now, on the surface, that seems like an intimidating question. We could think of all the things that we probably should do to make up for the fact that we've been far from God. Can we, you know, buckle down and and, and change our life in a significant way, start putting on ourselves spiritual disciplines and habits? Or perhaps try to find that emotional experience that can just kickstart our relationship 
Search for that thing that can give us that, that buzz or that feeling like, oh, I'm connecting with God again. And then we look at our schedules and our life and say, my life is just too busy to start finding that time. Well, our passage this morning starts drawing us into the image of this drift, what it looks like. But it doesn't just leave us there. It ends beautifully in this picture of spiritual renewal. And so let's turn to this passage now. Get a glimpse of Israel. Pay attention to where they're at, but also see what God is doing to rescue them and call them back to himself. So as we turn to this passage, let's pray and ask God to be with us. Father, we do want you to use this passage to open our eyes. We know that its message is for us that you've called us to sit here this morning and listen to it. Help us to understand it better, to hear your word speaking through it and calling us and bless us as we respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapters 10 and 11 in the book of Samuel appear to be Saul's coming out party. We saw at the beginning of chapter 10 that Saul has been anointed king of Israel. But it was a private anointing. In fact, we don't really uh, see this message getting to anybody else in all of Israel. Even Saul keeps it from his, his family. But now, in our passage, it seems to be making public. We will see Samuel drawing all the people of Israel together to make this decision. Even though we know its outcome, we see this election happening. And then we see, in chapter 11... Saul, as it were, proving that he's the king, putting his, uh, his title to work as he rescues the people and delivers them from their enemy. And yet the story isn't quite that simple and clear-cut. Israel can't just turn a new page and start living into the monarchy that they want to, to begin at this point. No, God won't let them forget that they got to this place because of sin. Israel's sin sort of just hangs over this whole story like a dense fog. And yet what we find here isn't God bringing up this sin again to rub Israel's face in it, but bringing up in their awareness of that sin again to show that it needs to be dealt with and to show that God's going to be the one to deal with it. In this passage, we see it begins with a call to confession of sin, to recognize it and to repent of it, all the way pointing to the spiritual renewal that he will show them at the end. But while he's doing this, he's starting to dredge up not just their recent sin, but he actually goes into the closet and takes all the skeletons and starts bringing them out. I mean, many of us have have junk in the attic. Whether it's your own personal uh, history of shame, or maybe it's shame that you're just related to, that's there in the place where you work, or, or in your family. And it's there, and then you'd rather just turn away from it. But here, God takes his people and exposes something horrific. Reminds them of a scene that they would much like to forget. 
For while it be easy for us to skim over this story and not hear of those skeletons, if Israel was to read this passage at the time, um, they would get all the clues. For undergirding this whole narrative is a horrific story from the book of Judges. It's actually the last story in the book of Judges, the story that, that is there from chapters 19 to 21. It's a story of a Levite and his, well, it's not quite his wife, it's his his partner, but it's his concubine. And the Levite and the concubine are traveling. The Levite and the concubine travel through the territory of Benjamin, and they get to the town of Gibeah. And you might start to hear some of the town names that we heard in our passage this morning. But if you're paying attention to it, it's hitting all the the wrong nerves. It's bringing up bad remembrances. Because this story, when the concubine and the Levite get to this town in Gibeah, all the townspeople, the Benjaminites, come out and they take this woman from this man. And they violate her. And they beat her. And they bring her to the point of death. It's a horrific story. And it it ends really with this gut-wrenching, act by the man who loved her but was so angry at this sin that he carves her up and sends the pieces to the people throughout Israel. And as they get this message, the message to them is clear. Come and deal with the people who have done this. Bring them to a point of repentance Because the shocking thing is, not only was this horrific act done in God's nation, with God's people, but the people of Benjamin did not seem to care about it. They seemed to smooth it over. And so, the people of Israel started to gather all the tribes together to go after Benjamin. And it began a civil war. They mustered their troops at the place of Mizpah. And every tribe other than Benjamin showed up there, except for the town of Jabesh. They did not appear. They, like Benjamin, didn't seem to see the significance, the depth of this sin. It's a story that left Israel fractured. And it closes the book of Judges and sort of hangs over there as this deep sin and sadness that never quite gets dealt with, even after the battle that they fought. All that's left is the book of Judges to close with that refrain that had been frequently there. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, it's no coincidence that the very moment that Israel gets a king, we now have a story that begins at Mizpah, the place where they were mustering their troops. And it describes Jabesh, that people who never came when the call came out. They themselves now are crying out for help. And they cry to Gibeah of all places, the place where that sin had occurred, to Saul, a Benjaminite who, when he hears the message, carves up an ox and sends it to all the townspeople 
all the tribes in Israel so that they would rally and fight. Well, what's the point? What's the point of this echo of, of this passage being brought back up there? Well, one, God wants to remind his people that this sin is still there. That they can't just smooth over it and forget. They can't just turn the page to a monarchy and pretend as though this stuff never happened. They can't continue with their belief that sin is a minor thing. That they could solve their own problems. But this echo also casts them back into the world of judges. A story that had a reminder of a pattern of spiritual renewal. Embedded in that book is this pattern or a cycle that occurs many different times that demonstrates God's people in their path from sin and idolatry to salvation and deliverance. This cycle begins with Israel turning from their faithfulness to God into whatever particular idol it was. And many times we saw them drifting away from faithfulness. And then as they gave themselves to these idols, they began to suffer under the servitude of it. Until at last they cried out for mercy and for God to deliver them. And the cycle ends with God's amazing act of salvation. Again and again that occurs. When uh, we heard that sermon series here, A while back, we learned it as the S-cycle, sin, then producing suffering, which leads to supplication, and then salvation. And it's that pattern I want us to, to look at here again, because as God draws us back into the world of judges with this passage, one last time, we're drawn into that book to confront sin, and to see a path to restoration. It provides a path for us, and I want to use that as the structure to see this work of renewal here. The sin, the suffering, the supplication, and the salvation here evident. First, the sin. What is Israel's sin? Well, if we've been following in the last couple chapters, it might not seem very clear because it has been a long time, almost three chapters, long chapters, before we actually heard anything about what Israel has done wrong. Verse 17 opens with what we think is going to be a momentous day. The joy of having a new king, something that they long for. Here, God is going to provide. And then Samuel walks out onto the stage and just rains on everybody's parade. He comes out, and he calls them out. It says here, he called the people together in verse 17. But really, the word is cried out. He's summoning them to repent. He declares the word of the Lord to them. And the way he declares it is, God has been faithful, and you have been unfaithful. You have rejected God. And he goes and he points out how their request for a king in chapter 8 is what led them to depart from God. Now, you look at that passage, and even the people there would have said, well, we never rejected God. We never rejected him outright. What we did was simply ask 
for a king. We wanted to be like the other nations. This wasn't a rejection of who you were, God. What we saw back in chapter 8 was this sort of growing frustration with God's timing, growing frustration with the methods that God was using. They seemed just to be implausible. They wanted to look for other solutions. And they began to slowly rely on themselves. And in that reliance, they began to say, we don't really need God. You know, it's not this outright rejection. Maybe you've been there. They weren't quite asking for God to get out of their lives, but starting to say every so subtly in all the aspects of their life that, you know what, I should be in charge of this aspect. God, you're good. I don't, I don't hate you, God, but you're good in your space. You need to stay over here in the, the religious stuff I do in my life. But very subtly, I need to turn back to the things that I want my control over. It was marginalizing God. It was putting him to the corners. Samuel exposes the reality of the sin that they did by requesting a king. He does so by quoting the first commandment, or at least the preface to the first commandment. It was there by he said, the word of the Lord comes to you. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And you almost expect him to go right into the first commandment. What's he doing here? This command that you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther says that you never break any of the other commandments unless you first break the first commandment. And it's true. We never lie, we never commit adultery, we never steal, unless we first start making something more fundamental to our hope and our joy than God. All of our sin begins with that. And it comes across subtly departure from seeing the Lord our God as the only God. Having a king is not a bad thing. It wasn't a wicked request in itself. But it was hoping in that king and the things that that king would do that were things that only God should do. That was the heart of their sin. They wanted to rely on themselves. They wanted a king that was chosen from among them, just like the way the world works, just like their neighbors did. They didn't want to rely on God to provide the deliverance. And now God gave them a king. God gave them what they want, but thanks be to God that he didn't give them a king that would be the sole part of their deliverance. Thanks be to God he didn't give all the control of salvation into their own hands. This is sort of what's behind that strange public coronation. And Saul gets brought out there, and then the Samuel calls for the election of a king by lots. It is to demonstrate to the people their limitations. The fact that it was God's selection alone and not theirs, not influenced by Samuel, not influenced by the people of Israel. The whole point of that selection is that this is God's person. They may have cried out for a king, God will provide who it is. And so then we might be asking, well, then 
what the heck is Saul doing hiding in the baggage if he's God's man? How many of us focus on Saul? And very quickly, we want to try to import some of the wickedness of his, of his future reign as, as a wicked king and bring that into this situation here. Is he faithless? Is he a coward? Is he trying to run from God? You know, it's, it's uh, easy to focus on Saul here. But we could just as easily focus on Israel. You know, Saul, up to this point, isn't the flawed king that he will become. In fact, it's, it's likely that he's showing proper humility and unworthiness, as many people who are called to major tasks, figures in the Old Testament, show that reticence to step into it. In fact, verse 24, Samuel says about Saul, there is none like him among all the people. That is glowing praise in the Old Testament. That phrase is only said two other times. One about Moses and one about Josiah, the great hero of the the later period of Israel's history. So maybe we shouldn't be focusing on Saul. What if we focus our attention on Israel? When we focus on Israel, we see that God's trying to impress upon them their weakness and their inability. Just as Saul couldn't find donkeys in all of chapter 9, and that word find becomes a major word in that whole narrative, here Israel cannot find the man that's supposed to be their king. They can't find him anywhere. They need to cry out to God to ask him for the GPS, the the specific little location where he is, so that they can go and get him. To the point where he stands up and he's like seven feet tall, and and the prophet Samuel says, do you see him now? Now that he's standing head and shoulders above everybody else? He's pointing out the fact that they are weak in themselves. They're limited. But you see... Their reaction. There are many here who praise God and who who embrace this new king. But there's some who just recapitulate that first sin. These, what uh, the text calls worthless men in verse 27. They see that this guy was hand chosen by God to be the man. And their response was, How can this man save us? How quickly we turn, looking at God's methods and God's ways and say, how can that possibly work? It's implausible. It's not the way that my neighbors do it. It's not the way others find satisfaction and success. If not taking a sharp U-turn, they've drifted. They've rationalized. They've rationalized their independency. Where are you? Have you drifted? Are there subtle ways in which you've been veering away from your dependence on God? You wouldn't call it rejection. But maybe it's just marginalizing God. Are you on stage one? Do you need to be woken up by the fact that there's sin that you've been drifting into? Stage two seems harsh. It moves into a suffering that happens as they are given over to the very sin that they want. 
we see in the beginning of chapter 11 that the Ammonites begin to grow as a major force. And they're threatening from the east, just as the Philistines have been threatening from the west. And Israel is now sandwiched. Well, what is their response? A godly response would be to trust back in God's promises, that he would deliver, to act like the people of God. But that's not what they wanted. They wanted to be like a nation, like every other nation. And whereas Israel was prohibited from making treaties with other nations, that's their first move. Let's make a treaty with these guys. Let's try to find peace on our own terms. And that did not go well. Nahash, the Ammonite, hears their appeal to a treaty, and he says, oh, fine, let's make a treaty. Come over here, I will gouge out all of your right eyes. That was a particular, particularly humbling threat. Because in the ancient world, it's the right eye that would not be blocked by the shield as you would try to fight. It would mean that if you come over here and make this treaty, your only role would be to be as a slave, and you could never rebel. No, they began this humiliating suffering for their sin. Sin, rejecting God, leads to servitude, them trying to make this treaty, producing its own suffering and slavery. It's the suffering we experience when we look to other things and hope that will pay off. Look to these idols and say, you know, it seems more plausible. It seems like it will be the right path. Israel fooled them into thinking, fooled themselves into thinking that they could handle the problems on their own. Notice they don't immediately cry out to God here. They begin to cry out to each other. They cry out as they send word to Gibeah. And they hope for a solution on their terms. You see, in order for God to break us, he has to give us the ends of our idolatry. We have to see its utter weakness and futility. God must exhaust the things that we put our hope in. If we've drifted, perhaps we do it harmlessly. We feel like, you know what? Life can go on relatively unchanged if I stop praying. And for a while, you can realize that you can give up all spiritual disciplines. And life would still seem like it works the same way it always had. Yet without realizing it, you start putting your hope in the future. You start putting your security for safety in your job. You start looking to your relationships for satisfaction, and your your family for a sense of worth. Except those things never really deliver. You never feel secure. You always feel like you need to keep performing and keep performing, and it will never stop, and the demands never end, and the payoff never comes. You feel more miserable and anxious and stressed. If you are there, if you're starting to feel that this rat race is just not paying off, then that is a grace to you. You are beginning to awaken to the futility of the sin that your heart is running towards. You're beginning to see the end of the idol. It will not pay off. 
putting the control of all those things that is designed only for God to provide onto yourself or onto those things of this world will always leave you bankrupt. It will demand from you and it will oppress you. It is a grace if God is starting to help you realize those limits. It is a grace when you get to that point like the prodigal son where your mouth is full of pig slop and you say, how did I get here? I have a father waiting right there. It's that part in the cycle that calls you to cry out. You cry out to the Lord. That's the third, the supplication. In the judge's story, the Levite and the concubine cry out. And the startling thing is that Benjamin does not cry out. They do not see the sin. They're not sure what the big deal is. There is no solid repentance here. It seems as though the the page just wants to be turned so that they could move on. In our passage, this message comes to Saul. And Saul reacts very differently. He's angry. And this passage doesn't leave us uh, with the, the decision, is that a good anger or a bad anger? Oh, Scripture is very clear. Verse 6 says this is an act of the Spirit. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Do you know that anger is a spiritual gift? Do you know the spiritual gift of anger? I know that rubs people the wrong way because anger so often in our lives results in sin. But if you're not angry at sin, then there's a deep spiritual unhealth in you. There's a problem that needs to be addressed. Being angry at sin is a sign of godliness. But let me be really clear, the anger must be at the sin. Uh, This isn't quite as simple as they hate the sin and love the sinner. I mean, oftentimes that just means let's be more loving and caring to people. That's a good message. Certainly don't want to diminish it. Being angry at sin can be a twisted way of being judgmental and harsh and cruel. And yet, if we're only angry at the person, or maybe even particularly if we're only angry at ourselves, we miss the true heart of repentance. True repentance doesn't lead to self-loathing, and it doesn't lead to beating yourself up. If you do that, you're assuming that in some way you're responsible still for your salvation and getting yourself out. You make it all about performance. But there's an even more sinister reason why some of us beat ourselves up in our sin. Sometimes we we wind up with our sin, hating ourselves, beating ourselves up, all the while saying we are miserable in sinning, in order that we can still coddle our sin. God, I hate what I'm doing here. But we don't often say, I hate the sin that I'm doing. God, I I feel miserable. I'm a horrible person. I keep doing this horrible thing. Thank you for your grace that could forgive me so I can still keep doing the thing here with a clean conscience. No, true repentance has to hate the sin to see it in its ugliness 
what our confession says. It says true repentance. Repentance unto life includes a grief and a hatred of our sin. It's only then that you will ever be able to turn from it. As long as it's just beating yourself up and seeing sin as still attractive, alluring, perhaps justified, then you will continue to go back to it. Saul, in his spirit-driven anger, is not just angry at Nahash, but he's angry at all Israel for not engaging in battle. This message goes to this town, and what do the people do? The people of Gibeah just look at their own resources, and they say, oh, this is a horrible thing. We're crying out. Saul sees it and says, what are you talking about? We have God on our side. He slices up an ox, sends the bloody message to everybody, and says, you get over here and start acting because God's going to let us win this war. It's an act, and it's a call to faith as much as it's a call to repent and calling out the sin of looking at themselves and their own resources. Saul is acting in the role of Christ here. His anger is a call to action, to take take sin seriously and to join God in dealing with it. True repentance, true repentance always must begin with this plea. God, I hate my sin. God, I want to hate it more. Deliver me from it. Saul gives this bloody wake-up call as a reminder that sin needs to be dealt with and to look to Christ as the one to deal with it. Fourthly, and finally in this cycle, is the reaction from God. Salvation. One can easily misread this section in the narrative and think that Saul must be a great warrior, and a great man of faith. But this is not a go-be-like-Saul passage. It is clear from this text that Saul is not the one who's been doing all the acting. It's not a justification that the monarchy was a good, good thing or that they chose the right guy. Saul himself makes it clear, verse 13, today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You know, the Ammonites, by all historical accounts, are a far superior military. They're a bigger kingdom. They should have just squashed Israel handily. Nothing less than God supernaturally coming in and delivering them as they walked by faith, trusting in his deliverance. It's a return to the promise. It's a return to a promise that leads to the renewal. And here we see the end of the S cycle, the path to true renewal. The people of God gather together and experience a renewal in faith and trust in God's promises. Part of the difficulty, as I said at the beginning, part of the difficulty in coming out of a spiritual drift is the thought of what it would take to come out. This idea that what I really need to do is muster up enough moral uh, fiber to be able to, to change my life, to transform my sins into righteous deeds, to be a good person. Or perhaps I just need to find that spiritual mountaintop experience so that I can once again know what it was like that when I was in college and had a retreat. We look for those things. 
those are the methods of revivalism. They seem spiritual, but often they're just looking to ourselves. We look for our standing. We base our justification, our, our rightness with God on our performance, on things we can experience. Those methods all feel like a shortcut to get back to God, to get back on track with Him. But they fool us because they will bring us back to disappointment every single time. As long as your spiritual health, your renewal, relies on yourself, it will disappoint you. In the Second Great Awakening, what happened in our country was uh, traveling preachers would go through towns and they would rev people up on a spiritual experience. Oftentimes they would call out particular sins and have people with a, a real maudlin approach. They uh, mourn over their sins and, and change their life and, and town after town would experience this. And then they'd go back after a few weeks and people would go back to normal. And the preacher would come back and do the whole thing over again. It would be exhausting. If you've ever been to a, a big arena sporting event and done the wave, you know what it's like, right? The wave comes by the first time and you first experience it. Yay, you get up and get, start getting pumped up. It goes around a second time. Ah, yay. A third time, you're like, pass the popcorn. This needs to die. And that's what the spiritual revivals were like pumping you up on false confidence that was just in yourself. They called those areas burned-over districts because preachers wound up coming there and having zero effect. And they stopped coming after a while. And people hardened to the gospel. You know, the S cycle is not supposed to be a cycle. Renewal isn't supposed to be a spiritual merry-go-round. Renewal doesn't begin with us. Notice Samuel doesn't begin at the very beginning of this passage and call people to spiritual renewal. No. It's built upon God's salvation. We will only experience it when we see the emptiness of the thing that we're clinging to, when we see our sin in its dirtiest. We see the ends of it, that it will never satisfy us, however alluring and attractive it looks however plausible it looks to get us what we want, it won't pay off. Renewal begins by giving it up and going back to God and trusting Him and His power alone. In verse 12 through 15, the the very last verses of this, we see a snapshot of the experience of true renewal. What happens when a people give up trusting themselves and look again to God? It's beautiful. True renewal, verse by verse here. True renewal no longer takes sin lightly. Verse 12, they call sin to account. They say, who said that, who is this Saul that can deliver us? Let's kill him. Let's take this sin seriously. True renewal also embraces grace from God. So verse 13, Saul can stand up and say, not a man shall be put to death because God has worked salvation. You are all guilty of sin. It is God alone that we can rest in His grace. And His grace has triumphed over our sin. True repentance commits to God. Verse 14, Samuel leads the people to a renewal in the kingdom. 
that's very strange because they just took this vow of, of commitment to Saul and just it seems like seconds later they're renewing the kingdom. But I think it's clear here that this is a renewal to the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Saul. They all join in looking to this and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Finally, true renewal always leads to thanksgiving and rejoicing. Verse 15, they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men rejoiced greatly. It was a celebration. Because it came not from them, but a realization that God did provide. He was the source of salvation all along. And it rejoiced in the security that that brought them. Now, it's not going to be long in Israel's history before they lose this vision. That they go back to trusting in Saul. It won't even be long before Saul begins to trust in himself and not the Lord. He starts taking shortcuts on his own. Every earthly king will fail. And so Saul always points us to a king who would come. A king who would not look to himself. And a king who would obey perfectly his father's will. To the point of death. Going through it even to new life pointing to a hope in Christ who has accomplished fully our salvation. This is how the drift ends. The drift ends when you hear the voice of God calling to you to acknowledge your sin and to look to the only one that can rescue you. It can start today. It can start right now. It doesn't require you to muster up the fortitude to be able to deal with a new changed life. It begins when you call on God to expose sin in your life. And then you look to God alone. You look to Christ. Is he calling you? If he is, don't be alone. Talk to one of us. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Spiritual renewal is something that wonderfully he's given you a family to help you with. Let's rely on that as we come to him. And so that we can come back to this table. Not in knowing that each week we need to perform to get here, but knowing that each week it is accomplished. For our King has won the victory, even over our life. Let's pray.